I've traveled all over the world with Ralph Lauren, with Victoria's Secret. The knowledge of business is like a form of the martial arts. How do you learn how to protect yourself and strike the most efficient blow so you can continue to do what you love doing? Well, in school, you don't learn that the business world that other people hit back. And in order to survive, you have to learn how to either avoid or absorb those blows and get around those obstacles so you can continue to do what you love doing. We stand today. The Business Method. With a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs' systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 12345678910 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the podcast today, and I am thoroughly excited to introduce today's guest. He was actually referred to the show by Steve Sims, who came on the podcast last month, 
episode 491, the go-to man for the world's elite. And we had an incredible time chatting. And Steve afterwards said, Chris, I want to introduce you to a friend, Jeffrey. I think he'd be great to have on your show. So here we are today with a legendary creative producer and once upon a time fashion designer, Jeffrey Madoff. Jeffrey began his career, as mentioned, as a fashion designer and was chosen as one of the top 10 designers in the U.S. He then began growing his talent into video and film production. His company, Madoff Productions, is a one-stop shop for high-quality creative services. As of today, Jeffrey has edited and directed award-winning commercials, documentaries, and web content for clients such as Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, Tiffany & Co. The Jewelry Company, Radio City, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and Harvard University. He's also worked with multi-billion dollar companies such as Gucci, Tommy Hilfiger, Revlon, Godiva, Juicy Couture, and many celebrities from around the world. Jeffrey's the author of Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, and has been a featured speaker at Princeton Wharton School of Finance, NYU, South by Southwest Brazil, Parsons Schools of Design, Google, and the list goes on and on and on. You guys, I'm really welcome, uh, excited to welcome him to the show today. Jeffrey, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you, and I know you're calling in from New York today, so sending good thoughts to all the things that are happening good in New York, but also to the people around the world with COVID. But we had a chat before we started recording the podcast, and it was a good um, warm-up to dive into more about what you're about and your creative processes you've used over the years. I myself didn't even realize I was a creator until like my mid thirties. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, I'm really a creative person. I've just been, nobody's ever really told me that. And then I realized I had this whole creative process I used to make podcasts, to make content, to make businesses, to make events. And I I was blown away and I started leaning into that and I thought, wow, and look at other creators and people that have creative processes. And I really like and respect what creators do. Um, but where did it all start for you? So, so where'd you grow up and then where did you start to learn that you were going to be a fashion designer and a creative entrepreneur? I grew up in Akron, Ohio, (laughs) and I guess, uh, the inciting incident was birth. (laughs) that was the first that was the first creative process that happened right (laughs) i was the product at that point yeah your parents Um, did well yeah (laughs) and uh you know i never had any grand plan still down Mm -hmm. uh and you know what i think i was very fortunate about was that my parents just encouraged me to do things Okay. So I always had a talent for drawing and like drawing. So they had uh, retail stores and they would bring home craft paper and I could draw. And in my bedroom, I could basically do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that was kind of my space. And uh, they always just encouraged me to find and do what it is that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because when I started my adult career, which was first with uh, fashion design and and you mentioned i was one of the uh top 10 young designers in the united states Mm -hmm. it's a lot more impressive sounding than it actually was because i don't think there were i think there were only eight of us so it was really hard hard to fill out that top 10 because you know young people weren't doing startups back then right and uh and this was the 80s is that right uh, it was the 70s 70s okay yeah and uh a dear friend of mine called me up. He had graduated from college a year before I did and 
saved, had saved up some money mm-hmm. and said, can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest? And I was working in this little boutique and uh, I said, well, I see the stuff that we sell and I could always draw, I'll start a clothing company. Yeah. Not having a clue as to what that actually meant. You know, I had a little bit of knowledge of retail because of my parents and working in the store. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was the buyer for that little boutique. Uh, but, you know, when I saw, I was so naive that when I saw fabric on the bolt, I thought it was wholesale because it hadn't been made into anything yet. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, I was ignorant, but not stupid. Mm-hmm. And the distinction being ignorant, you can learn stupid's forever. And, <laughs> and so I learned and, you know, learning was a necessary part of survival because I really didn't know anything. So it was the trial by fire. Yeah. Was there a moment that you realized that, Hey, I, I really like fashion. Like this is um, something that really appeals to me and it, it kind of lights me up. No. No, no, you know, it was really that kind of serendipity. I was in the store when my friend called. Uh And uh, so it seemed like, well, this is something within grasp. And uh, who knows if I would have been (laughs) having dinner when I talked to him. I'll open a restaurant. I mean, I, I don't really know. So it wasn't that I had any burning ambition to be a designer, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I had a double major from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which is where I went to college, in philosophy and psychology. And uh, I had hoped to get a job as a sage or a wise man, but... uh, They weren't hiring at the time. No, they weren't. They weren't. That's right. (laughs) These Uh, days, you can do that really easy. Back then, it wasn't so hard. Like, you just put a (laughs) website up, right? (laughs) That's right. Yes. I'm a coach. I'm a wise man. I'm a sage. That's right. (laughs) So how long did you pursue fashion before you decided, you know, this isn't what I want to do anymore? Well, you know, it was interesting because my stuff sold quickly. I got some of the sewers who did alterations for the store to put together some of my sketches. And I took a shirt that I really liked and cut it apart on the seams just so I could see how it was made. What are the puzzle pieces that go into a garment? You know, Mm -hmm. I just didn't know. So I had the curiosity to want to find out which I think is, you know, essential if you're an entrepreneur or creative is having a fundamental curiosity about just about everything. hundred percent. Yeah. And, uh, my company was doubling every three months. So within like a year and a half, I had 120 employees, two factories, an office in New York, and I was constantly in the thick of things and was learning as I went. And I, you know, had to pretty early on attract some significant financing because my friend sent me, we can't remember, he and I were actually talking about it recently and I can't remember whether it was $1,500 or $2,500, but that was more than I ever had at one point. So that seemed like a lot of money to me. I realized very quickly, no, it isn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not much. Uh, But I attracted a very good financial backer who's the reason he backed me, he thought I was, you know, sort of an interesting novelty. And he owned five banks in Wisconsin, and he was a fifth generation Wisconsinite. And the fact that I provided employment for 120 people or so, uh, and they banked in his bank, that's nice. what attracted him. 
And he was a very good man. And he made it clear from the beginning that I'm backing you because you are providing employment here. Uh, and if you ever move the base of the business, I'm not going to continue to back you. Yeah. And I never thought that I would want to move to New York, but the more time that I spent in the city, the more I realized I was a stimulus junkie that okay. I was around <laughs> people who were doing really interesting things. And there was theater, there were museums, there was things going on 24 seven. And I just loved it and yeah. wanted to move here. And I realized that money comes and goes, but time only goes. Right. And I wanted to be here. So we negotiated, you know, basically a settlement. It was a divorce, but a very amicable divorce because I wanted to move to New York. And he had made himself clear. And I had saved up enough money that uh, once I moved, if I lived frugally, which I did, I could travel around for a year. And I did until I ran out of money. And then I started another company and built that up. What was the name of your fashion company, your first one? My first company was called Billy Whiskers. Uh, where did you get a name like that at? I always loved children's books because of the illustrations. And so I collected them. And there was a character actually from Sawfield Publishing in Akron, Ohio, called mm -hmm. Billy Whiskers, who was a goat. So I made up this whole story around Billy Whiskers. It's actually kind of funny when i was chosen one of the top 10 young designers uh -huh. and there was a big fashion show in new york and all the fashion press was there and then afterwards a number of the reporters said well now why is your company named after this goat yeah and, and i said my parents you know my mom was a missionary uh -huh. and my father was a shaman in a tribe and when i was a kid i was swaddled in all these colorful fabrics and it was the tradition there like you have dogs as pets here to have goats there. Uh -huh. And so I grew up having a pet goat. And uh, when I went off to college, Billy died. And I wanted to honor his memory by naming my company after him. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and so my parents read this right up. It was in magazines and newspapers right, right, all over. Right. And my dad said, you actually told him that? <laughs> I said, yeah, I did. And he just cracked up. Yeah. Uh, because it was all made up. Yeah. But right. I was ahead of my time who knew hyperbolic bullcrap would actually <laughs> get you a lot of publicity. And that's the world we've evolved to. Right. So, right. Uh, now it's all over the place. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, now you, you mentioned that you're, um, you're, did you say hyperactively stimulated or when you went to New York city, you said that Stim I'm a stimulus junkie, stimulus junkie. Yes. Do you still feel like you're a stimulus junkie? Absolutely. Yes. I, I feel that as well. And I think like, especially in today's world, a lot of people are becoming stimulus junkies, whether they want to or not, or whether they enjoy it or not with our computers and devices and everything. But that's one of the things why vibrant cities are really enjoyable for me. It sounds like for New York, for you as well. Do you ever feel overstimulated? And if you do, what do you do to kind of balance that out and make sure you're not getting too stimulated by the lights or sounds of New York City or just seeing how you handle it? 
you know, no, I've never felt overstimulated. Really? Yeah. Uh, you know, now I exercise every day and that's a great release, but I don't do it because I'm overstimulated. Uh, I do it because it makes me feel good. Yeah. Which arguably is another form of stimulation, right? Yeah. And, sure. and, and I'm one of those weird people, which isn't always the best when you're married, uh, which I am and have been for 28 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't feel so compelled to go on vacations. Okay. Because, you know, within walking distance, we can go see a play. We can go to Lincoln Center and see a concert or dance. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so much. The best restaurants in the United States, arguably, are in New York. You know, there's so much that you can do. And I just, you know, I love it. And I'm not one that's really very good at laying on the beach. Okay. Uh, I do like hiking and I do like being in nature for a bit, but, uh, you know, I just love this city and I, I've never, it's interesting to ask that question because I have never felt overstimulated. Yeah. Well, that's great. Then New York City is the place for you for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, or, or I'm so messed up. I don't realize. You know? <laughs> Could be, who knows? But Could maybe be. that's why it makes you so great, you know, with your creative processes. <laughs> so what year about Jeffrey, did you start to move into a different, phase of your life you fizzled out the fashion design and then moved into i'm guessing this is when you moved into um working with agencies working with companies to start create advertisements productions commercials sort of thing yeah what ha happened was uh i was in the process of selling my second company and uh and it's weird chris you know just the serendipity that happens i was buying fabrics uh from this company that I had worked with for a few years. And the owner of the company said to me, what do you know about the film business? It's not much. I said, I love movies and I've read some books about it, but I don't really know much about it. He said, well, my son's your age and he's involved with some people and uh, he won't listen to me, but he might listen to you and you've got a good head on your shoulders for business. Would you mind meeting my son? So no, I'd be happy to meet him, of course. And his son at that time was working with William Burroughs, who is one of the cornerstones of the beat generation. Okay. Uh, his main book was uh, Naked Lunch, but another one of his books was Junkie. Okay. And Tommy had optioned Junkie to make a movie. And it was being directed by Dennis Hopper. And Dennis Hopper was just coming off of doing Apocalypse Now. Okay. So uh, I would see the checks that Dennis got from Zoetrope, which is Francis Ford Coppola's movie company, mm -hmm. that he was getting you know, royalty checks from Apocalypse Now. <clears throat> and so Dennis and I really hit it off. And that started this whole journey about learning about film and, and how that all happened. Uh, and it was an interesting, very, very interesting time, but was also a time of uh, excess in terms of uh, alcohol and drugs that I didn't get into. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was a time when a lot of people were, and sure. it was clear that this project was not going to be happening. Okay. Uh, and it was interesting because Tommy, the son of the guy I worked with, uh, I said to him, you know, you're going to get squeezed out of this project. 
He said, what do you mean? It's mine. I mean, I have the option to it. And I said, it's true, but it's not going to happen. Uh, they don't need you anymore. You've got this team together. And sure enough, two weeks later, they offered him money to buy him out of his option. Mm -hmm. And he talked to me about it. And I said, you're going to triple your money within eight months. And this project's never going to happen. These guys can't get it together to even get out of their hotel suite, let alone make a movie. Yeah. You know, and uh, so he did triple his money. And I was really looking forward to the film being made because Dennis wanted me to be a supporting character in it. I thought, well, that'd be cool. Yeah. But it was clear it was never going to happen. But that started me on the path of making films and learning about film and production and all of that. It sounds like you've kind of fallen into the industries that you became really good at. Like you've kind of fell into fashion, you've kind of fallen into film production. Um, and you mentioned earlier that you've never kind of had clear direction of where you want to go over the long term, that you just kind of just go with whatever kind of comes your way. Is it a feeling, Jeffrey? Is it like, ah, oh, this feels like the thing I should do now. I'm going to follow that. Is there a process that you use in order to kind of tap into knowing that this would be a good thing for you? I don't have a process. No, uh, okay. Now, what it, what it is, is I'm seduced by ideas. Okay. And I have been fortunate enough that I've been able to figure out a way to make money doing those things that I'm interested in. Yeah. And uh, it is certainly not always the most prudent business decision, okay, you know? yeah. uh, but it really keeps things interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And being in the fashion world, I, can, I think this is probably interesting, I hope, for your listeners, because the thing about entrepreneurship and the thing about these different businesses, and I've been from a fashion designer to a filmmaker, which I still do, uh, teaching, writing a book about my class. And then I've written a play that I'm producing and that we have a theater deal. Mm -hmm. And what the through line is, is if you look at these processes, their businesses have much more in common in terms of the protocols than they do that separates them. Right. So, and what I mean by that is when I was designing a line of clothing, I first had to have a concept. Then I would sketch out some ideas. I would lay out those ideas. Uh, I would have to figure out, well, what's the cost of labor? What's the cost of materials? Uh, when does this have to be manufactured and delivered by? Collecting the money from my clients who bought the clothes. And that was very much the same as doing commercials or films, which is you have an idea, you storyboard the idea, you write it out, you figure what kind of labor do you need? What kind of materials do you need? How long is it going to take? Mm -hmm. What's it going to cost? What's the market for it? And, you know, can I sell it for more than I made it for? Right. Same right. thing with doing a play. Yeah. You know, so all of these things, if you look at the protocols behind business and aren't intimidated by a different vocabulary, they're all very much the same in terms of what you have to do to move a process forward. Okay. And I fortunately learned that after the clothing company and I started doing film and realized, wow, this is kind of the same thing. Yeah. In terms of what I've got to think about and how you execute on it. Yeah. 
Do you find, I think that kind of sounds like it would be a superpower in the, the film and production industry. Um, we interviewed a while back, Jeff Hoffman, who's a Priceline, one of the kind of creators of Priceline. And he's also worked with a lot of famous musicians and produced um, award-winning series and a movie as well. But he took his entrepreneur skills and applied that into the business and music industry. And he said that he found a big lack of people that could turn a return on make a return on investment with these creative ideas in the music and business industry. So it kind of sounds like you were applying that same method is you're coming to these industries and you're saying, okay, here's this idea, let's create it and then make sure it makes money on the back end. So we all survive and everybody has a job and we can keep doing it over and over. Does that sound right? It's absolutely right. I, I, I say to my students that the knowledge of business is like a form of the martial arts. How do you yeah. learn how to protect yourself and strike the most efficient blow like so you that. can continue to do what you love doing? Yeah. And one of the interesting things that came out of Enter the Dragon, the Bruce Lee movie. And I always love this as a metaphor. The movie's not very good, but his fight scenes are cool (laughs) as hell. Yeah. And one of the villains in the movie holds the board right next to Bruce's face. And then he breaks the board with one punch. Bruce doesn't even blink. Mm -hmm. And he says, boards don't hit back. Well, in school, you don't learn that the business world that other people hit back. Yeah. And in order to survive, you have to learn how to either avoid or absorb those blows and get around those obstacles so you can continue to do what you love doing. And so that movie stuck with me because that was the thing that nobody was learning in school. And that's what I had wanted to teach, which that's one of the things I wanted to teach, which is what I've been doing in the class I teach at Parsons. Mm-hmm. Just be aware, not everybody's nice. Yeah. And there's going to be, I've often said that, you know, God, I wish these people would work out their issues in therapy rather than on the set. <laughs> you uh-huh, know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But because you have to know how to deal with that stuff because it's hard. There's always going to be obstacles to overcome, whether those are people or like the unfortunate things that have been ha- happened in Texas recently with the snowstorms and so mm-hmm. on. You know, these are things that happened that you couldn't have anticipated and that upended a lot of businesses and people's lives. Is there a way, say you talk about absorbing blows, like we have to learn this as entrepreneurs and it sounds like you do in the production industry as well. When you say you get a quote unquote blow through business or through, you know, working, creating a play or producing a play, how do you handle that personally? It, it, Depends. I try to figure out the solution and figuring that out could mean talking to knowledgeable people and, you know, comparing and exchanging ideas about the best way to deal with things. And some things, by the way, you have to deal with right in the moment. Right. So hopefully my interpersonal skills and communication skills are sufficient to help me in that moment. So it just depends if it's something that is infected the business over time that uh, I need to understand and find a solution to. That gives me a little more time to seek console. And other times things hit you in the moment and you just have to respond. And hopefully the backlog of knowledge and wisdom that one has obtained allows you to keep moving forward. 
That makes sense. I'm always curious because as people that create things, as people that as entrepreneurs, like this is ongoing. It doesn't matter how old we are, how professional we are, how skilled we are. Something's going to come up along the way and you're still doing it, produce it, dealing with it, producing movies. I like to share this because once upon a time, I thought by the time I was 30, I'd have it all figured out and no problems would be that I shouldn't have any problems after that. Right. I'd have a million bucks. Da, 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 da. But, you know, it's an ongoing, right? This growth process as a human is uh, as an entrepreneur, as a creator is it never ends. It just keeps going and going. It's about the way we handle things. Right. And hope to create a better situation on the backside of it, no matter what interaction, positive or negative, happens. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it does keep going. There are, you know, different stages of life. There are always problems that you have to deal with. And I don't think it ends till your life ends, you know, yeah. but it's not like, oh, I got it all figured out and there's never another problem. And, and I think it's really interesting when you talk about entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship is most often a roller coaster ride. And if you survive, you're going to have some real ups, which I've had, and you're going to have some real downs, which I've had. And a lot of people don't realize that they don't have the stomach for that. Mm-hmm. And they buy into this myth about entrepreneurship that I can work my own hours. I'm making my own money. I'm doing this for myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any entrepreneur that doesn't work more than anybody who's got a high paying job. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just part of the freight that you pay mm-hmm. when you decide to do that. Now, the, the beauty of it is you're doing it for yourself. And so there's a lot of yourself invested in that. But the downside of that is, I think a lot of people don't ask themselves the question, well, what is success for me? What does it look like for me? And, you know, when you were thinking at 30, I should have this all figured out. Does that mean when you realize at 30 and you haven't figured it all out, you're a failure or have you gained insight so that you can continue to move forward with a little more maturity and reality about your vision for moving forward? Absolutely. Yeah. And you do every life lesson, like you just gain a little bit more insight and more insight. And it's not about not having problems, but how we handle those problems that make us the individual, right? Right. Absolutely. Let's talk about um, your creative processes. So I know you have your book, which I'm sure is an amazing book. I did some research on it, Creative Careers. And as a creator, I'm going to dive into that sucker. And you talk about building a sustainable business in the book as a creator and you've interviewed over 40 creatives, Damon John, Tim Ferriss, Dave Asprey. And you talk about, I think, five key points that are really valuable in the book, determining your value, be smart about the hustle, ruthlessly edit down your creative projects, overcome fear and doubt, and create a successful, long-lasting career on your own terms. Why'd you write the book, first off? Well, the book was actually a result of the class that I teach at Parsons by the same name. Right, yeah. And I kept getting told by people, because aside from the students, a lot of adults, you know, uh, middle-aged and older audited the class because they wanted to hear the guests that I had, wanted to hear the interviews. And I kept being told, gosh, you know, you ought to write a book and get this out there and just expand so more people can hear these ideas and these discussions because this merging of creativity and business isn't what you find in any of these books. And 
you know, it's funny because it's like, oh, you should write a book. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, uh, I didn't really know how to go about that in terms of getting a deal. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have any representation. And there were some obstacles on the way to doing that. Uh, the interesting thing was first publisher, I found representation and the first publisher that we went to, which is one of the major business book publishers, they said, well, why would a business person care about creativity? Mm. <laughs> and then one of the, the, then we went to self-help, okay. uh, which is what creativity falls under, which I don't know why. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And they said, well, why would a creative care anything about business? <laughs> and I think, guys, you just don't wow. get it. No, yeah. And then it went to Hachette, who is the publisher, and they greeted me in our meeting with, wow, we love the idea that you put creativity and business hand in glove. It's not being approached that way. And there's a real niche for this book. You know, whether you're somebody who's embarking on a new career or whether you are somebody who is looking to change direction or start a new business. Yeah. And so I thought, ah, oh, they get it. And the meeting went so well that they said, um, how quickly do you think you can write this and turn it around? And, you know, I had already conducted the interviews because I do them every week in my class. Mm -hmm. So then it was about figuring out the organizing principle for the book and how I wanted to approach writing it. And uh, so it was, it was an, an interesting process. But the, the primary answer to your question as to why is because I wanted to get these ideas out there and seed what I hoped was fertile ground for discussion so that people could learn and pursue what it is that makes their lives more fulfilling and answer some of those questions, or at least cause them to think about some of those questions. Because I don't believe there are formulas for these things. You right. know, I think that you have to go out there and engage yeah, and figure stuff out. That makes sense. If somebody is a creative and they have a creative idea and they're trying to start a business, let's just start at this point, uh, trying or attempting or would like to start a business, what's the process that you would recommend to them? So one of the things that I learned when I started my first company as an adult, you know, because I had a ton of jobs when I was younger, uh, but when I started a company as an adult, the fashion company, the first thing I did is have some of my ideas sewn together and put in a store where I worked and they sold out immediately. So then we had more made and they sold out immediately. And, uh, and when I say immediately, it was like within one or two days, we sold out like 20 pieces. Oh, wow. of those. Yeah. <clears throat> so I put together an entire line and put it in a suitcase and strapped it on the back of my motorcycle, drove to Chicago, went to 18 boutiques and I think sold 14 of them. Nice. And all of a sudden I had like over $50,000 in orders. So what I had was proof of concept that, you know, you cannot be the only one in love with your idea and hope to build a business. Right. You know, is there a market for what you're doing? So I think before you go all in, it's important to figure out, is this something, a product or a service that's desired? And how do you find that out? You put it out there and you don't just talk to your friends. You know, you try to get it in front of people who don't care if they hurt your feelings, you know, because yeah. you got to find out, is there a real marketplace for, you know, what it is that I'm doing? And, and that's true, whether you're doing a painting, you know, or whether you've got a new app you're developing, 
you know, who would be interested in buying this? Why would they be interested in buying it? What do you say to the people out there, um, people that want to start a business, the creatives that have created something, or also entrepreneurs that have creative products or services that they've come up with, and it's just not selling. It's People are just not interested in that creative thing that you have created, and but you love it so much, but you know... The economy, the market saying, no, we don't want it. What do you say? What do you say to those folks? Well, do you like it well enough so it becomes your hobby? Okay. <laughs> as yeah. opposed to your livelihood. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that it's important to not be delusional, you know, uh, but it's also important not to give up on your idea too early. Right. So, you know, there's important things that I think you have to look at like some of the accounting one has to do by, well, here's my overhead expenses for a living, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and so you can determine whether or not you quit your day job, so to speak, when the potential income from your new business allows you to quit the job you had and move on to something else. Uh, you know, one of my guests, Yuko Shimizu, who's an amazing illustrator, uh, didn't go off on her own until she was into her 30s. And she had a lucrative job in an ad agency in Japan. And uh, she gave all that up because she wanted to pursue her art. And what she figured out was, because people were saying, well, you could become a waitress or whatever. And she moved to New York from, from Tokyo. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said, no, I don't want to become a waitress. I want to be doing my art. So she realized, you know, that it would cost X amount for rent and food and all of that. And that here's the going rate entry level for doing illustration jobs. And if I got three jobs a week, 12 jobs a month, I could support myself. So she decided to go all in and she had about six, eight months of runway money, you know, that she could do that. Mm -hmm. So she did a calculus on it and decided to go all in on what she did because that way she could make more contacts in the illustration community because there were people who were booked and they would refer jobs to her. And she was able now, you know, she's been wonderfully successful doing the work that she wants to do. Her parents were against her moving to the United States, giving up a lucrative career and doing that. Mm -hmm. Her passion was her art. And she figured out in a very dollars and cents way what she needed to make in order to do it. And her calculus was basically, you know, if I've got about eight months of runway or so, if I'm not even moving towards my goal because nobody's buying what I'm doing, <clears throat> maybe I have to find something else. But she didn't have to. She was able to grow and blossom a phenomenal career as a result of the confidence she had in herself and importantly, the quality of the work that she did and the relationships which is an important part of being successful. Yeah. The relationships you cultivate, build, and sustain. Because relationships are the most important currency in anything you do. Absolutely, absolutely. So I've noticed there's um, people in, in that start their art or their creative work and proof of concept launches really quickly. It sounds like 
that kind of happen with yourself. You know, a lot of musicians, like Elton John's a great example of this as a young man playing the piano and uh, people loved him and in his early 20s started to become very famous and still is today. Um, and then there's people that spend 20, 30 years before they get a proof of concept, but always plugging away. Maybe they live their life, start a family, eventually, you know, as a side hustle or as a side project, um, create something, failure, create something, failure, create something, failure, and eventually something takes off. So like out of the, the 40 people that you interviewed, Jeffrey, did you notice, um, anything were they more of the type of creatives that success came early in their careers or um was there anybody that you interviewed that it came you know 20 years down the road after trying to try and failing failing and then eventually hitting the golden nugget and it taking off for them uh it was different kind of time frames for everybody some people had a totally different job and then a new opportunity came up and, mm -hmm. and a lot of it has to do with recognizing opportunity. You know, right. Some people call that luck. Mm -hmm. I call it, you know, being aware and awake mm -hmm. and recognizing an opportunity that you can seize and try to do something on. Right. So I think that there, the, the through line, if that's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important the through line of everybody I know who was successful at what they're doing. And, and again, there are those obstacles along the way that you mentioned. Uh, the through line is persistence and that you keep going yeah. and you keep moving towards your goal. And as long as you're trending towards your goal and you're not ruining your life or the lives of people that depend on you, that, it happens incrementally. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, I was interviewing Dennis Crawley who started Foursquare. Yeah. And uh, he had done a company some years before called Dodgeball. And it was one of the first geosocial networking platforms. Yeah. And I think Google bought him, bought his company in like 2006 or so. That was before they were paying outrageous amounts of money for things. Mm -hmm. And uh, they basically bought his company to shut it down because they saw it a threat to their future plans, which yeah. a lot of companies buy company, you buy the only reason that Facebook bought Instagram is they saw them as a threat. Yeah. Yep. And they had the money by that point to buy their competition, which yep. is what they did. Anyhow, I said to, to Dennis, when we were talking, and I said, it's pretty tough being an entrepreneur, isn't it? Because, oh, man, nobody ever talks about that. He said, yeah, it's really hard. And he said, there are days that I'm on the roof of the building shouting in triumph. And the next morning I can be sitting on this, in the stairwell with my face in my hands. thinking, <laughs> How am I going to meet payroll? Uh -huh. And that opened the door to a really great discussion because that's reality you know and no matter how successful you are you're going to take those hits along the way and it's just a question is earlier on can you withstand those hits and continue your pursuit towards what you're going for right and persistence is a huge and essential factor if you're going to be an entrepreneur yeah let's talk about the five steps in the book so determine your value how does one determine their value and 
in relation to maybe the process is just finding proof of concept, like we were talking about earlier, but, but can you share more on determining your value? value? Well, determining your value is probably the hardest thing for a creative person mm-hmm. because you think there's not a precedent for it. If you've got a job of being the chief marketing officer at a company, you know, you can figure out, well, here's the world that I'm dealing in financially for compensation for a company this size. Mm-hmm. And you do research, you do your homework and you figure it out. So the thing is with art, what's interesting, uh, another wonderful guest I had was Zaria Foreman. And Zaria's work, I suggest you look it up, okay. Zaria Foreman. Yeah. Uh, it's fabulous work. And uh I said to her, so how did you know how to price your first piece of artwork, you know, that you were selling? And she kind of laughed, said, well, I really didn't. And there was somebody interested in my work. And so she said, I went around the galleries that were featuring people that weren't known or established uh, new art and looked at things that were around the size of my painting and thought, okay, this is the ballpark that I'm living in. <laughs> Uh And I said, so how much was that? And she said, uh, it was $5,000. And her paintings are pretty large scale. Okay. And I said, so how did you feel just before $5,000, the price came out of your mouth towards a potential buyer? She said, I was totally scared. Mm -hmm. I had no idea where they said, what are you crazy? Nobody's ever bought your work before. You think I'm going to pay you $5,000 for that? You're nuts. Exactly. And they bought it right off. No discussion. And of course, most entrepreneurs think, oh man, maybe I could have gotten a higher price. Exactly. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so I said, so that's great. And how many years ago was that? And she said, uh, almost 10 years ago. And I said, so I'm just curious that kind of painting now of that size, what does that sell for? And she smiled and said over a hundred thousand. Yeah. And so she didn't know when she was scared. And that's something that most entrepreneurs face, especially if you're creative, because you don't want to blow the sale and scare it off because of sticker shock. But you also need to have the confidence in when you present what you think you're worth. And it's anchored in real world somehow doing your research. Uh, you know, you, you want to figure out how do you consummate that sale? And I think one of the important things is there's two sales that happen. And I've talked a lot with Dan Sullivan about this, who is who runs Strategic Coach. Right. And he and I have... Uh, A lot of conversations, very insightful, smart guy. And he said, well, you know, there's really two sales that go on. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, the first one is you have to sell yourself. Because if you don't sell yourself, they don't know what the prices are. So you're the one that's afraid of the higher price, Mm -hmm. you know? And so what you have to do is first sell yourself so you can present your price with confidence, that is going to register with your potential buyer. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because that's true. Because if somebody says, well, how much does X cost? You go, I, I, I don't know. That doesn't really give you, how's 5,000? Is that, okay? I mean, that's not going to breed confidence. But when you state things confidently, and I'm not saying arrogantly, but you have a sense of what your worth is and you are confident in what you're stating as your worth, 
and realizing you're just starting off on that road and that hopefully will that value will grow. Uh, but you do have to sell yourself first so you can present well to others. Be smart about your hustle. What's that about? Being smart about your hustle is being aware of the world that you're functioning in. So like Zara, uh, Zaria, I'm sorry, Zaria, when she was checking out the price of other paintings that were around her size uh, and in galleries and being sold, you know, she got to know the world she was dealing with at that point as an entry artist mm -hmm. who hadn't sold anything before and wasn't even being had didn't even have the benefit of being sold in a gallery. She, this was just somebody who was interested in her work that had seen it. Uh, so whether if you're creating an app, are there any other apps out there like it? How, how do they do a subscription model or is it a free thing that is a lead gen for something else? Know the world that you are hustling in and be aware of what that is so you can make smart decisions and also so it's not so alien to your potential customer mm -hmm. that they don't know what you're talking about and aren't willing to pay for it. Very good. Um, this is one thing that I found really interesting, this point here, ruthlessly editing down your creative process projects. How do you do that, Jeffrey? So I'm really happy you asked that because that's really my favorite topic uh -huh. among these topics, because I think it's essential not only to every creative project that you do, but it's also essential in, in business. And editing is the key tool mm -hmm. to master. It's hard. So it's it is hard. hard. And it's <laughs> yeah. very hard to do yourself. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll give you an example from my play. Uh, we were doing this scene, the first table read with the actors when we were preparing for a performance. And this was to raise money for the play. And uh, the director that I'm working with, Sheldon Epps, is fantastic. And there's a scene where the main character, Lloyd Price, who's a real person, rock and roll Hall of Fame legend, there's this uh, scene that takes place in Australia. I won't go into the whole thing, but uh, it's a funny scene. And as the actors were reading it, they were cracking up and the ones listening were laughing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I wrote it, and I'm thinking, something's off. Something's off. So we finish, we take a break. And I said to Sheldon, what do you think of the Australia scene? And he goes, well, we know it's funny. Everybody was laughing. It's an interesting story, but is it essential? Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you mean by essential? And he said, well, does it either reveal more about the character or move the plot forward? And I said, no. And he said, then it's not essential. Take it out. So, you know, as the writer, of course, I loved that they're all laughing at the jokes I put in there and all of that. Of course. As the producer, which I also am, I want to put the best possible product out there. And uh, he was right. And I took out the five pages. And uh, that's what ruthless editing is. Yeah. So if you're doing a pitch for your company and you've got a deck, let's just say your deck is 25 pages long. First of all, you got to realize that nobody's going to pay attention that long. 
that you don't need to say everything Mm -hmm. and you need to get other eyes on it. So for instance, I'm doing uh, a new direction in my production business and in putting together the presentation deck, I sent it out to six people I know who that's their world, the world that I'm trying to attract. And so I got feedback from them on, you know, does this appeal to you? Does this lose you? At what point does it lose you? And edited down that presentation deck so that it was only what was in there was essential. Mm -hmm. It was all essential and no other fluff that was in there. So whether you're pitching a business, whether you're writing a play, if you're doing a painting, you're editing, what's, what are we going to see in that frame? And you edit that because you're making decisions. Your decisions are not only what you put in, it's what you leave out. Mm -hmm. And that's what editing is. And, you know, Michelangelo was asked uh, when he had done the, the David uh, sculpture. And somebody said, how do you take a two ton block of marble and create David? And he said, I cut away everything that doesn't look like David. <laughs> and that's really the essence of it is that you get down to what that essence is. And by the way, when I had, when I thought I had finished the screenplay, uh, the theater play, and we were doing the reading, I started hearing it very differently than how I wrote it. Uh And that informed further edits that I made. And I thought, by the way, that I was snare drum tight in terms of my writing. And I took out 15 pages. Wow. So, you know, no matter what you're doing, whether it's a business presentation, whether you're writing a book or a play, whether you're doing a painting, a, a good example is also with apps and in technology, uh, feature creep, where you put so many features in because you think that's going to enhance the value. But in fact, what it does is makes it more complicated to understand what the value of the thing is. Yeah. You know, because it's just got too much clutter in there. And, and 80% of those features you aren't going to use anyhow. So don't show off and put everything in. Yeah. Edit. Yeah. Edit. And, it, and I think that's the most powerful lesson that any creative can learn is how yeah. important that is. How do you still find yourself getting a, getting having a strong attachments to things that you need to edit out? Uh, well, let's say that my attraction to them is less than my awareness of that they need to come out. <laughs> Okay. So, <laughs> okay. You know, yeah. my interest is in, in, and the thing that's interesting, I guess, is when somebody, when I get notes on something, it resonates to me. You know, when I asked Sheldon what he thought about that scene, he voiced the reason I even asked the question in the first place because I wasn't feeling totally secure about that scene. Mm-hmm. I knew it was entertaining, I knew it was funny, but I also kind of knew. We didn't really need it. Right. And uh, so I'm always interested in the final product being as good as it can. So you can't fall in love with this part of it when it's that big. You know, you've got to consider the whole and what communicates that vision in the most effective way. You've worked a lot with Victoria's Secret and some other major companies, Ralph Lauren, Godiva, and so on. When you 
come together with, say, Victoria's Secret has a vision of what they want to create, a certain commercial or advertisement, and then they communicate that vision to you, and then you guys collaborate on a vision together to create um, the commercial. What, what is that process like for you when those two visions come together? How does that communicate it? How's it worked out? How is it edited? How does that all play? So great question. And this relates back to what we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. which is building relationships. Because I think that especially today, all companies are in the trust business. Mm -hmm. And the only way you gain trust is through building a relationship. So as time passed, I had to do a lot less pitching because they knew my work was good. They right. knew I had good ideas. I had proof of concept because it got audiences for the things that I did. And so, you know, building that relationship is a crucial part. Starting off, when I would pitch an idea, you need to have a reason for why you're suggesting what you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that when you're dealing with a known brand, like a Ralph Lauren, for instance, or a Victoria's Secret, you're not going to reinvent the brand. Right. So you'd have to, again, be prepared, be ready by doing your homework and understanding what the brand stands for. So you're not going to reinvent Ralph Lauren. Ralph Lauren stands for status, good taste. There's a certain look that's been a through line of what he's been doing since he started doing it 50 some years ago. And unless they're really looking to reinvigorate or redefine a brand, which companies do, uh, you're not going to change what they do. So you want to evolve what they do so that you're bringing distinctive ideas and that you have the ability to execute. And so when you're doing your pitch, you need to be really clear about what that idea is. Mm -hmm. So to give you a, a real world example, and it happens, it happens in, in, in many ways. Uh, we knew we wanted to do something. This is for Victoria's Secret for Christmas. And uh, so we needed to find a Christmas carol that was in the public domain just because of costs. And I wanted to have the, uh, the models, you know, wearing kind of Santa's helper outfits. Okay. And uh, so they weren't wearing lingerie. And most of the things I did for them, the models weren't in lingerie, which was already a break from what they normally did. But I wanted to create personalities out of these models. So the song was Deck the Halls. And I had models from Australia, from Brazil, uh, from Holland. And uh, I knew they weren't going to know that song. That's an American Christmas carol, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, as they're singing the song, they're screwing up and constantly and the other ones who were off offset were laughing and it was it was quite funny and my client said to me they can't even get through the song you know this is a disaster mm -hmm. and i said no this is the commercial we're going to show these what people think are perfect looking people mm -hmm. we're going to show their human foibles oh nice and so they went with it and it was one of the most successful things to this day that they've ever done. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, nice. Got tremendous amount of organic spread that it was on TV in its entirety on like the Today Show and Entertainment Tonight and all these different programs. They were giving them two minutes of free airtime promoting their holiday piece uh, and all these write-ups about it because it showed the models in a whole new light. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, People they're perfect, then they that. make mistakes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it made the models more relatable. Yeah. So that was a cool thing to do. And, you know, they went with that idea. Um, I did Ralph Lauren's Lifetime Achievement Award, which was at Lincoln Center. It was presented to him by Audrey Hepburn. Okay. So it was quite an event. When I first presented, you know, I had dinner at Ralph's home with he and his wife. And I said to him, uh, here's, here's what I want to do. You know, I, cause he, I asked him if he had any family picture albums. And so he showed me and I saw a picture of him as a baby. And then I saw some pictures of him as a kid, kind of interestingly dressed and not unlike some of the things that he's made. And he was very influenced by the movies. And so I, I said, I want to start with this picture with you as a, little kid mm-hmm. he doesn't know and i said uh now i really want to do that and i think it's going to really engage the audience and he goes no nah, i don't want to go there coincidentally and it was a coincidence i had a dvd with me of a film i had made for my parents 50th anniversary mm-hmm. and it starts off with them really young and i played it for ralph and his wife and by the end of it, tears are going down his cheeks. And he goes, I'm crying. I don't even know these people. <laughs> and I said, that's what I want to do for you. And he said, okay. And so at Lincoln Center, introduced by an icon of Hollywood, Audrey Hepburn, my film was about to start. And I knew that I was either going to really nail it Mm-hmm. Or I'd never work for him again. <laughs> and, and the and the fashion audience is a tough, tough audience. It was fashion and entertainment audience, tough audience. Yeah. Fade up from black on the picture of Ralph as a very little kid, and there's this audible gasp from the audience. And I knew that I nailed it. Oh, nice. And for the last 30, 45 seconds of the piece, people were on their feet cheering. Wow. For Ralph as he came out. Wow. And so sometimes it's not giving people what they want. It's giving them what they need. And because I had worked for him, I, he had, I had his trust and he was willing with some convincing to allow me to do what I thought was best for him. Yeah. And then other things, there's more back and forth and, you know, all of that. So it's kind of all over, but the main thing, and it bears repeating is establishing a relationship based on trust so that they know you're looking out for their best interests. And yeah. I think when you look out for your client's best interests by proxy, you're looking out for your own best interests because they'll hire you again. Yeah. But it's also like having confidence in your own, trusting yourself in your own creativity, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I guess that would come, you know, it also, obviously it comes with time and practice, but also, um, just, just 
do you ever feel that intuitive thought that is just like, yes, I know I need to do it this way, even though the world is saying do it another way? And then oh, going absolutely. with it. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we, we did a thing for Victoria's Secret. They wanted to do uh, something for Super Bowl weekend. Uh-huh. So I thought, oh, we're going to have the models playing football fully suited up. I mean, not going to, you know, unless you're really sharp eyed, you're not going to realize until you're into the spot that these are the Victoria's Secret models. Mm -hmm. And I had to map out a bunch of stunts and had stunt doubles doing things. And, and uh, these stunt doubles, which were actual female professional football players and also casted from NYU and Columbia University volleyball players, because I knew they would have more matching body types being tall and slim. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they're jumping off of, you can't see the platform, but it makes it look like they're airborne catching a pass at them leap from a platform to a bunch of crash pads. Yeah. And uh, one of the people from Victoria's Secret, there was a person I worked with directly who was fabulous and had a lot of confidence in me. The other person said, nobody wants to see the models dressed in football uniforms. This is stupid. And <laughs> they want to see them in lingerie. And I said, you want to see them in lingerie. But, you know, this is showing another facet to them and is going to widen the appeal. Mm -hmm. Well, this is idiotic. It's never going to work. Well, we did it. And uh, it worked incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And and the CEO at that point of Victoria's Secret said, oh, I didn't know that Adriana could throw a pass like that. <laughs> yeah. And I said, oh, these women are much more talented than you think. Yeah. I didn't say to her, no, that was a body double. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> threw the pass, you know, because uh -huh. no, she can't throw a 40-yard pass, but that woman could. <laughs> yeah. <You know>? yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there, there are times that, I was able to stick to the idea, but the only reason I could is because I did have internal support. Yeah. You know, from the person who hired me and, you know, I, I, so you can't go knocking over all the pins if you don't have the internal support, you're never going to get anywhere and you won't get hired again. Yeah. You won't even get a chance to prove whether your idea is right or not. So you have to be aware of the context of what's happening. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot in the, in the, past hour or so and you've mentioned relationships and how important it is to have relationships actually i read a forbes article written by garrett gunderson talking about you and him discussing how you see relationships how you maintain relationships and the importance of long-term relationships you've nurtured probably thousands of relationships over the years with some of the most successful people in the world, but also, you know, keeping friendships with people from childhood that you've known over the years. How, Jeffrey, how do you curate, choose, and nurture those relationships that you're in? Well, Chris, although I have aged, I haven't matured. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I get along best with people who I play well with. Okay. Uh, that we make each other laugh, but that also nothing is out of bounds in terms of the conversation. And there is a difference between friendship and those relationships and business relationships. And I'm fortunate that I've had many business relationships that are fun and I enjoy, uh, but I know why I'm there. And it's a really good professional relationship, but I don't confuse it with friendship. Okay. 
And I think it's important, you know, to realize that I never had a contract with Ralph Lauren, but uh, I worked for him for 36 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had a really good relationship. Were we friends? Not really. We got along really well. Mm -hmm. We enjoyed each other's company. But, you know, I brought value to his business. He brought value to mine. And we had a really nice relationship. But am I going to call Ralph at three in the morning if things are going haywire in my life? No. But will I call my friend Ellis, you know, or Doug or Kenny at three in the morning? Yeah, yeah. I will. And I, so I think it's important to draw the distinctions. But, you know, Victoria's Secret, I didn't have a contract. Worked with them for 26 years. And it's because I always delivered value. I always brought new ideas to the table. And I think it's really important to make yourself necessary. When you make yourself necessary by delivering value and they see that in their consumer public, in this case, when they're selling goods. Yeah. So, and, and you know, when you travel together with people and I've traveled all over the world with Ralph Lauren, with Victoria's Secret, uh, people want to be around people they enjoy. Yeah. You know, so it's about... It's like friendship in the sense that you have fun and you respect each other. And it's also really important that you listen to each other. That's not only the success of a relationship, that's the success of a good creative collaboration. Mm -hmm. Listen and acknowledge other people's ideas. You know, don't think that you know everything. Yeah. And don't think that your idea is the be all and end all because in all of these instances, like I mentioned with the play, Sheldon helped make the play better by giving me those notes. Yeah. And, you know, and some people, by the way, have to believe it's their idea or yeah. they're never going to buy into it. And so you have to learn how to be able to, you know, deal with people like that too, you know, yeah. uh, let them think it's their idea as long as the piece is better as a result. Yeah. Cause some people just need to, in business, they need to put their thumbprints over something. Oh yeah. That was my idea. Oh, I did that. <laughs> I don't really care as long as I get hired again. Has any of your business relationships ever turned into the three, I can call you at 3 a.m. friendships? Um, Have any of them? Yeah. Yes. Uh, maybe it's maybe a as, couple. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, that's kind of what happened with me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say uh, there are people that I have become friendly with outside of the business. But, you know, when I talk about like the names that I rattled off to you, uh, that, those were people that I've known from when I was literally a toddler because my mother and my friend Kenny's mother grew up together to my friend Ellis. He's a more recent friend. That's third grade. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, it's funny. I was on a call with a bunch of people. Uh, I put together the social call for friends to sort of, you know, meet. and uh, this guy said, God, I've known you. I've known you since freshman year of college. I'm the most recent friend on this call. Uh -huh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think that's, I think that one's life is enriched by others and you try to enrich other people's lives in turn. Yeah. And that's what the true friendships and relationships are. And I think that one should strive to make business relationships as fun and as pleasant and as valuable as possible, but don't mistake it for what it isn't. Yeah. I like that. Um, do you have a daily routine, Jeffrey? <laughs> yeah. What, what's it like? 
it, it's funny because I was asked this question once before uh-huh. and it was more specific. I said, well, what's your morning routine? Yeah. And uh, said, it's really not anything that's going to help your listeners. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, high, high achievers, you know, you're a high achiever. And what's, you know, what's that? Well, how do you jumpstart your day? I'm sure we could learn something from that. I said, yeah. you really couldn't. And they said, well, tell us what you do. There must be things you do every morning. And uh-huh. I said, well, there is. I get up. I take a piss. You know, I brush my teeth. I take a shower, then shave get dressed and then try to figure out what the rest of the day is going to be and what my appointments are. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, so, you know, I do have a calendar. That's how I showed up on time to do the podcast, but, uh, you know, I, um, I don't have, and by the way, this may be to my detriment, but I don't have a routinized thing. I try to work in exercise every day. Uh, and there's things that I try to do, as often as I can, but as they say, the best laid plans there are times that I don't get to the exercise. There's times that I had set aside time for writing, but that got spent during something else. And, you know, since I was a kid, like I always liked roll top desks and all okay. the little drawers in them. Yeah. And I always thought, and I liked all these multi-drawer filing cabinets and all this kind of stuff. And I always thought, Oh, you know, I could be really organized if I had one of those. And I realized, of course, the organization is up here. Uh-huh. And uh, so I've never been as organized as I hope to be uh, or as disciplined and systematized as maybe I would have liked to have been. But I've gotten by. That's fantastic to hear. You know, I think uh, that's like showing the models, you know, mess ups. It's like you you saying, um, you know, I've never been as organized as I've hoped to be, or, um, I've don't have a morning routine that can help a high performing entrepreneur take their business to the next level or whatever. It's really nice to hear because you get to see the real side of you and what it's like to be, uh, an open and vulnerable human and creator, you know, and sometimes things work out. Sometimes they don't and just get up and do it again the next day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Jeffrey, is there anything else that you would like to, before we wrap up, talk anything else you'd like to say about your book, what you've got going on, share with our listeners, any final words of wisdom? (laughs) Words of wisdom. Uh, Well, I think that if you liked what we talked about, and this is to your listeners, uh, you know, the book, what makes the book something I'm really proud of is that, you know, there's the range of people that I talk to mm-hmm. and the various and differing approaches they have to what they do. Cause I'm not a believer in prescriptive behavior, mm-hmm. the five steps to success. There is no such thing. Uh, it's what I call the myth of replication Okay, because you cannot repeat what somebody else did. Yeah. You are different. The circumstances are different. Who you're dealing with are different all these variables. It's a very complicated ecosystem. You can learn, of course, best practices, mm-hmm. show up on time, be prepared, do your homework, be polite, all of those things. But in terms of these specific recipes for success, beyond that, I don't believe in them because they don't happen. And the thing that I think is really important, as I mentioned, is, is asking yourself what success looks like to you. Because most people are not going to be Elon Musk Uh, Most people are not going to be Steve Jobs. And a lot of entrepreneurs 
get by. But mm-hmm. if they're getting by doing something that they find fulfilling, that pays their expenses, and they look forward to doing it every day, to me, you're successful. Yeah. So it's not about the size of the business you build or the amount of things you acquire or the money that you have. It's that are you living a life that is fulfilling? And are you contributing anything in doing that? Uh, and I think that the book has got a lot of good stuff about that and about how different people, some fantastically, fantastically successful and others who just figured out a way to do what's fulfilling to them mm-hmm. uh, that I think we can all learn from. And, and I love the teaching that I do because teaching is a great way to learn. And so I encourage everybody to stay curious, to keep educating yourself, to go to meetups, go to concerts, go to plays, go to movies, read books, and constantly feed that creative aspect of yourself because it just gives you more dots to connect and more things that can fire and make things interesting. Absolutely. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on or get your book, where's the best place they could do that at? Well, the book is available at Amazon and all fine booksellers. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And so there's an audio version, there's an audible version, a Kindle version and the paperback. And uh, I would also ask if you read it and you like it, please post a review on Amazon because that helps with their algorithms. Mm -hmm. And if you read it and you hate it, just keep it to yourself. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And you can go to uh, www.creativecareer.com. You can see clips from my class and things that will be updated regularly. You can follow me on LinkedIn and you see my name there, B. Jeffrey Madoff. And I post clips from the class and things that I think you'd like. And there's an Instagram site at a creative career that also has shorter clips of my guests and so on. And I also do, there's madoffproductions.com where you can see some of the videos that we spoke about, like the Victoria's Secret football video and some of the others are on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and listeners, I really recommend checking out Jeffrey's stuff. I was checking it out, doing research before he came on the show. Really amazing content that you're putting out there, Jeffrey, especially the videos that you have on your website, really done very well. Part of my jumping around is I'm trying to avoid the sun. That's okay. It's been a long, long conversation here. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom. I will say wisdom, a lot of wisdom. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you very much, sir. Well, thank you. I totally enjoyed our conversation. I hope that your listeners get some value from it because I made all that stuff up. And, uh, <laughs> Just like that your father's a shaman and your mother's a, a missionary. Exactly right. Right. <laughs> uh, but I really enjoyed spending the time with you, Chris. And thank you very much for having me on. Yes, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.